Do you want your middle school girl to grow into a strong, confident, and resilient young adult? So do I. The only thing is, middle school's hard for both kids and parents. Welcome to the Raising Middle School Girls podcast. I'm Janice Scholl, and I'm just a regular parent on a mission to uncover the best tips and advice for raising middle school girls. Hi, everyone. Janice Scholl here. My guest today, Dr. Emily Edlin, is clinical psychologist specializing in children and adolescents. She writes about parenting on her blog, The Art and Science of Mom, and she's also written a parenting advice column for Parents.com since 2019 and has written for many other publications such as The Washington Post, Scary Mommy, and Motherly. And I'm so excited to announce that Dr. Emily has recently published a book that is out and available now called Autonomy Supportive Parenting, and this is a must-read for all parents of really kids of any age, but I think can especially help us within the middle school years. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Hi, Janice. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to start just by talking as a clinical psychologist who works with kids and adolescents what does your work entail? What are the most common things that you're working with adolescents on? Well, it's interesting because my specialty is actually health psychology, which means I work with kids dealing with medical problems. However, those medical problems often overlap with anxiety and mood problems, which they both reinforce each other. So it's a cycle uh, since Mental health is physical health and the other way around. So I'm seeing the results of a lot of pressure, a lot of stress that come out in the body through things like migraines or GI conditions, other kind of stress-related physical problems that are really starting to get in the way of their lives. Interesting. So the the stress and anxiety that they're feeling is manifesting into physical symptoms. That can be how it happens. Or, you know, there's a condition that starts organically for medical reasons, but the stress and anxiety worsen the symptoms and the presentation. I see. And have you seen an increase in recent years of kids that need support? I think so. I feel like kids increasingly over the last 10 years or so are coming in with so much pressure from all angles. And it's not just parents. I mean, we'll talk more about the parenting piece, but it's our culture and social media and peers and um, the pandemic didn't help. So there's just all these layers to what's happening with our teens right now. Yeah. And I mean, you you just said it. There's so many angles that our kids are feeling pressured from, and we as parents can only do so much. But your book really talks about what us parents can do, and there is a lot. Can you can you tell me what does autonomy supportive parenting mean? I know what autonomy is, I know what supportive means, but I don't really know that term together. It took me a while to really understand the depths of this term too, so I'll do my best to give it a nutshell. But the idea of autonomy supportive parenting is actually rooted in 30 years plus of research. So this is an approach that has been studied in many different ways across age groups and in different contexts. The big picture is 
it's using certain strategies that really support our children's sense of agency, independence, confidence in their skills, and connection to others. So I know that's the big picture, and then we get we get into the weeds about how to do that. But I think the reason I find this topic so timely right now in our current world is all of these pressures that we just mentioned make parents more controlling, which is the opposite of autonomy supportive in the sense that the more we're trying to protect our children and control their environment for their benefit, we're doing it from a very loving place the more they're not developing autonomy, a sense of agency and skills. And and what does it look like for the adolescent who grows into a young adult who really doesn't develop these skills? So I have seen these young adults in my therapy practice, so I can see firsthand what happens. And their whole developmental task of leaving the family is delayed. So they are more dependent on their parents at later ages, and this really undermines their confidence and self-esteem. And I see a lot of aimlessness and feeling lost and not knowing their path, their values, their goals, because they've been so protected throughout their growing up. It, you know, you were talking about the cycle between anxiety and depression and the health implications of your clients and the cycle. And I feel like this would be a cycle as well. If you feel that way and it's resulting in you being more dependent, then you actually become more dependent and then it cycles. Right. And then the parents feel like they have to do more because their child doesn't have the skills yet, but then they're not allowing their child to develop those skills by continuing to do for them. Because what ends up happening, which is not the intention, but what happens is when we do things for our children that they are capable of doing, we're messaging that we don't think they're capable. And then they internalize that. And it's all very, you know, subtle. This isn't explicit messaging. But if we're rushing in to do something for our kid that they can do, what I mean, I know how I feel when, you know, someone, let's say my husband, maybe correct something that I've done and um, that doesn't feel good. You know, I want, I know my skills and I believe in my skills until someone corrects me. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways. I love my husband. He's great, but he, he sometimes does things that bother me. He can be annoying at times and there, and, and lately I've been like using that lens to look at how I manage my middle school daughter and realize like the things that bug me from him are the exact things that sometimes I'm trying to do for her. It's like, well, let me just help you. Let me just answer this. You know, I'll tell you what to do in this scenario. And that's not, it's like the whole, when I'm talking to my husband and I want to vent and then he tries to solve my problem. And I'm like, I don't need you to solve my problem. I just want you to hear what I have to say. Yeah. And I think that's so good to bring up because we all have that experience and that feeling. And so if we can tap into that and then channel it when we're parenting, I think that helps us be more intentional about supporting our kids' autonomy, like realizing how it feels to not have a sense of agency in a situation or to feel like our skills are being undermined. And then we can really better understand our kids' perspective 
Because one thing I do see a lot of parents doing in the middle school years is trying to fix their kids' social and emotional problems and stress. Yeah, it's, I mean, it hurts when they hurt. It hurts. Right? Yes. We don't want to feel that heartbreak of watching our kids struggle socially. Right. And so here's, I talk about this a lot in my writing. In so many ways, parenting has become such a healthier, more positive dynamic than generations past. We have much more highly valued our relationships with our children than previous generations. I think parents are more like committed and in tune than ever to, you know, the actual relationship and connection itself. And that has some byproduct of being so connected that when they hurt, it's like our own hurt and it's hard for us to tolerate both their pain and then our discomfort. And so then we want to make it go away. It's like a visceral reaction that is almost similar. And I'm talking about my own experience. I imagine I'm not the only one, but it's like when an infant cries, you know, that mother instinct to like help your baby and get them out of whatever is causing them distress it, it doesn't feel like discomfort. It feels like distress and I want to make it go away. And in my brain, I might know I need to give her the power, but in my heart, that's, that's where we really struggle. It, you brought up a great point because we do have this like weird timing where, you know, we agree that maybe some things in the past could have been done better. We could have parented more effectively as a society. But now, like the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction. And I hadn't really thought about it in the fact that like, now our emotions are so interconnected that I can't really, like I'm in the weeds. I can't see the forest through the trees. How, how did we get here? I mean, that's a great question. And there are other authors in books that have kind of traced the evolution of parenting guidance and, you know, what's popular and why. My impression is that the 90s were really where it started, the sort of intensive helicopter parenting. And it can be traced to this whole, (laughs) there's like a study on problems with self-esteem in kids and that parents needed to be more positive and give more praise. And it like went way to the other side where, you know, the whole thing of you, everyone gets the trophy, you know, and no one wants to feel badly about themselves. And it, it just caused this whole eruption of attention on every child's experience needing to feel positive uh, for their self-esteem. Then there's also the whole role of media and fear that I think is really escalated with, you know, the internet exploding and just more polarizing media outlets everywhere. There's this, you know, this is what gets attention are things like your child will be kidnapped and these fear mongering headlines that aren't connected to statistical reality, but make us more protective because that's our evolutionary job is to protect our children. So I think it's a convergence of a lot of different factors. And I would add 
our own stress and anxiety as parents are really high. And so surveys are showing how stressed out and burned out parents themselves are, and that makes us more controlling. So it's all of this put together. And the irony to me is that the stress and anxiety make us more controlling and intensive in our parenting, but then that stresses us out more in many ways because we're doing too much. Talk to me about this specifically, because I think that a lot of us parents are super stressed out and we are like, just going to muscle through. We think just powering through for our kids is what we need to do. But what I'm hearing is it can actually cause us to parent in a way that's not helpful. Right. And I think um, mothers are especially vulnerable to these ideas of being a quote unquote good mother. And even surveys are showing that these intensive parenting practices, which is being heavily involved in every aspect of our child's life and knowing everything about what's going on in their lives is good parenting. But it's so much work. I mean, if we even talk about the online portals for grades, you know, and every single assignment, you know, and getting emails when an assignment's been graded, I mean, it's so in the minutiae, right, of the child and parent's daily life that it, it just takes so much energy. So what can happen is we think we're being good parents by being so available and uh, accessible and involved and knowing everything that our kid is doing on their phone, at school, with their friends, tracking them, you know, all of this stuff. But in the meantime, with that stress, what can happen is we are actually becoming less emotionally available and responsive because we're just getting so delete, depleted in our energy. So then we're going to get snappier with our kids. I'm sure we can all relate to this. You know, the irritability goes up. Then you're not able to actually be the parent you are aspiring to be because you're so worn out. Yeah. It's like we never get out of that fight or flight, like must combat the world and must control it all, that we can't just take a step back and enjoy and be present in the moment. Right. Right. And just take some deep breaths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. We all need to breathe. I tell my kids this, like, let's just breathe. I need it every day. Uh, I, I want to like, okay, so I could be reading something in a Facebook group that's for moms of tweens and teens. And I'm like, well, clearly you should not be getting involved in this friendship problem that you're daughter is getting involved involved in. But when it's my kid, it's not easy to see, right? Yeah. So like, it's totally easy to recognize that we as a society could do better, yeah. but it's really hard to see our own behaviors and how we're doing it ourselves. So are there any ways that we could like check ourselves and be like, am I, am I actually parenting my kids in a way that is supporting their autonomy, or am I doing the opposite? So I will admit, while I was writing my book and really steeped in all of these ideas and concepts and research, I became so much more aware of my own controlling ways that were very automatic. And so I think the first step is even understanding this whole framework of controlling versus autonomy supportive 
that increases your own self-awareness in moments where you realize, oh, I'm jumping in to rescue them right now and they need to figure it out. I have a sixth grader and an eighth grader, both daughters. So I'm right in the thick of raising middle school girls. And the friendship stuff is really significant. You know, a lot of changing friendships, which is very normal in middle school. Um, A lot of experimenting with different ways of acting. And, you know, it's not always aligned with my values as a parent. So it can be really tough to watch this play out. And I know from all this work I've been doing, so I have the benefit of that, I know that I can coach them. So it's not like it's totally hands-off parenting. And I think it's a good sign that they still come to me and kind of let me know what's going on for the most part. So I can coach them, but that's very different than saying, this is what you have to do, you know? And I want them to build up their confidence, seeing these years in middle school as training grounds, right? These are the are really influential years for their later adolescence in high school. So it's keeping in mind the bigger picture too. Like, what am I doing now that could actually feel very hard, but is better for them, you know, in two years? Yeah, it it's good to know that even the experts struggle with this stuff, right? Like I say this all the time because you realize that a lot of this stuff, you might on the surface have an inkling. It might feel like you can't do it all for your child, but the reality is it's hard not to get involved. And I am a work in progress. Absolutely. I was so anxious with my daughter starting middle school because of my own baggage, right? Because of my own middle school experiences and heartbreaks. And like, I got to realize that she's her own person and there's ways that she's like me and there's ways she's completely different. And some of the things that upset her don't upset me and vice versa. So I'm a work in progress. And one of the things that just starting to learn about these important ways to let our kids experience heartbreak, it, it let our kids experience failure, it, it helps me interpret what she says to me when I'm not doing it. And so an example, we're driving in the car the other day and she says something and I said something back and she's like, mom, let's not turn this into a lecture. Now that to me in like, if I, if I hadn't processed some of this, that would be like a snarky comment. I'd be like, come on, let's not talk to me like that. But she was calling me out on doing something when she was handling it and she just wanted to give her observation. So my reaction to her in that is, is now like, okay, you don't need a lecture right now. If you want to hear more about that, let me know. Right. And so she gave you feedback right in the moment and you took it. So those are two really important pieces and it means she'll be more likely to do it again. I hope so. I hope so. Because that's, I mean, that's the hardest thing, right? Is that our kids are exposed to so much nowadays that we don't know about. And of course they, we were as kids too, but now with access to online media and, you know, just the floodgates have opened access to all kinds of stuff that we don't want our kids exposed to. If we shut down that communication, we don't even, like I always say, we don't even know what we need to parent these days, let alone how to parent. I That is what I really come back to, especially in these middle school years, is that 
keeping those communication lines open. And if you come down too hard and fast on kids when they make mistakes, they will shut down and they won't come to you. And you're kind of shutting down the whole relationship while thinking this is what good parents do is they are very clear, like this is a violation or this was wrong and you're grounded or, you know, whatever the situation is. You know, in my book, I share an example when my oldest was starting middle school and she had her first smartphone, uh, which is terrifying. It feels like, oh, my gosh, she has like this gateway to the entire world of all these things that I can't make sure she doesn't see any of it, you know. Um, But we had our policies around cell phone time and screen time and we had a contract and did all the stuff, right, that experts say to do. And I feel like we used autonomy supportive strategies in the process where she was part of coming up with the ideas and, you know, she was in agreement. But a few months into it, we were fighting every day. And I, every time I picked up her phone to look at, you know, our agreed upon monitoring of the phone, I just had dread of like, what am I going to have to talk to her about? And she started to get sneakier which then she would later admit, you know, because she would feel guilty about it. But this is what will happen, right, is more conflict, less communication. The kids will sneak around anyways, and this is proven in the research. So we had a real heart-to-heart about making a change, and she asked to not have a screen time limit because it stressed her out so much. And so I said, and I never would have predicted. This is another one of those parenting moments of never say never, you know, Um, that for my 12-year-old daughter, we said, okay, we won't do screen time limits. I mean, that sounds ludicrous with all that we know about everything. But in this, this is where context matters in each child is their own child. And I said, as long as we had an agreement, as long as you continue to do all this other parts of your life, like what we need to see is that you're living a balanced life, because I realized that was really the root fear for me in in supervising the phone so much is that it would take over, that she would become addicted, you know, all of this. So it's and it just I think it was a real turning point for our relationship. And again, at 12, I mean, this is a very significant period developmentally. Um, she felt like we trusted her, you know, and she felt listened to. And we still have boundaries and limits. It's not a free-for-all in the sense that she has chores and, you know, she needs to do her schoolwork and she has responsibilities that she needs to keep up or that freedom, you know, with the phone becomes compromised. And that's part of the agreement. But it really was a lesson to me in prioritizing the relationship and keeping those communication lines open and how to be flexible when things change. That's it's that's a really great example because it's one that a every family I think is going through to some degree, you know, and we want our kids to not be addicted to their phones, but we can't deny the fact that the phones are a part of their lives and it is often a social Thing for them once they hit middle school, they communicate by, they don't, there's, we don't even have a house phone. Like they're not calling each other like we used to. They have to be able to communicate, to coordinate with their friends, things like that. I, I can't remember where I read recently, but it was talking about the danger in only having 
limits, screen limits, and being so hard in enforcing those rules is that then our kids never develop the ability to self-regulate right. because they're always relying on us. And that was like a game changer of an idea to me because I'm like, well, but we have to, but we have to, this is what, and, but what you're saying is still have boundaries, still have expectations. This isn't, this is autonomy supportive parenting. This is not free for all parenting, right? Um, Still make sure that you're guiding your kids in the, in the direction you want them to go. And, but yet allow them to be a party at the table, setting the boundaries make sure they understand why those are there. And if there's a problem with a boundary, understand the reason why they have that issue so that you can find a different solution. That's what I'm hearing from you. Absolutely. And so in my book, my favorite part of the book, and I have heard that others really like this too, is I have these vignettes of really realistic parenting dilemmas and then outlined the controlling response versus the autonomy supportive response. And the theme of it is the controlling response may be effective in the moment, in the short term, but in the process of using more controlling responses, you lose so much learning and connection with your child. Whereas the autonomy supportive response There's time for open-ended questions and curiosity to understand what's been going on before talking about consequences, for example, for, you know, posting something on Instagram that was inappropriate or, you know, whatever the situation is. It's not that that's not a part of the conversation, but it's a conversation rather than a lecture. And again, over and over, it's showing and demonstrating to your child, you see them as a valuable person separate from you, worthy of their own voice and opinion, even if as parents, we still have the authority and veto power. Yeah, it's it's like training them to use the muscle of being an independent person. You're still the safety net, but we're allowing them, you know, we're kind of around the edges of the new walking toddler, but we're not actually walking the toddler. Right. And they need to develop problem solving and critical thinking skills. And if we're doing all the thinking for them, that's not happening. So I think there's just so much opportunity when we come at some of these, you know, points of conflict and stressors and just really normal disruptions, right, in the family when kids are growing up and when in our parenting that uh, that there's actually a lot of opportunity and growth. Yeah, I think for everyone, right? Yes, yes, us included. <laughs> we're always growing and changing, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Parenting has taught me so much. Um, you know, in your work, you talk about the sweet spot between being too permissive and too controlling. And that, I mean, and and I love my parents. My parents are wonderful, but they were definitely strict parents and strict, you know, like plug in the word controlling, right? It was more right. of a no because yep. I said so. So how do we, and so I find that I vacillate between the two, you know, sometimes I'm probably too permissive and sometimes it's like a hard no. How do we find that right spot? I think that's such a great question. And you're right. It's going to shift around depending on so many factors. First of all, who your child is. So what that looks like may be different for each one of your children. If you have more than one child, 
each child needs something a little different in terms of structure versus freedom. Depending on our stress levels, what's going on in our lives, we may tend towards the more controlling side and kind of being aware that that's happening is the important piece of it. And I think I always talk about this as a practice. Autonomy supportive parenting is a practice, not an identity. And it's using a growth mindset of I want an autonomy supportive environment in my home. Not every interaction, not every day is going to be autonomy supportive. It doesn't mean all is lost, right? It's kind of giving ourselves that grace too and flexibility that we can keep going. We can keep trying. We can keep doing our best and knowing we're just, we're going to have hard days. We're going to have days where we, it's the same thing as like yelling at our kids or being more controlling with our kids or having a reaction. I do it, but knowing better, which is really hard when I'm like, ah, (laughs) I I know what's happening right now and I can't stop it. Um, But I think that self-awareness and that self-compassion are the keys, right? So kind of knowing the framework, but then having both of those in place helps all of us be more autonomy supportive. Yeah. And having that self-compassion, I find for myself, it comes easier when I expect mistakes out of my kids. Yes. Because it's in, in something I didn't realize until, you know, this age our kids kind of look at us as these all powerful knowing beings. Like we just get it right all the time. And most of us feel like we're kind of muddling through it and just doing the best we can. And so giving them the grace, then it feels more allowable to give myself the grace because I can show them I'm a work in progress because I'm not expecting them to get it right all the time. Because if I expect them to every day, then I have to be right. And that I think um, is really important for me. Absolutely. Expectations make a huge difference in our, our own like happiness and mindset, right? If we have realistic expectations, it kind of helps us be more relaxed in general than these really high unrealistic expectations. When it comes to both academics and social media, I'm always like just expect mistakes. Just expect it. You know, it's part of growing up. And I think the middle school years, especially, like I said, I mean, it's like, it's like baby calves learning to walk, (laughs) just kind of like wobbling around and they're flexing all these new muscles in their brains that come with puberty and figuring things out. They're going to fall a lot. And the important part is they know They can come to us about it. They can get support from us about it while also having clear limits, you know? So like you said, it's that sweet spot, you know, and I go into it in detail in my book of structure and freedom. I think that's great. And something I've taken away from this conversation that I'm going to do is when I'm in the moment with my kids, I'm going to ask myself the question, hopefully before I start speaking, I'm going to ask myself the question, am I stressed and anxious right now? Like, am I in my own life? Because that, like, if I could just recognize that that's a part of my reaction, hopefully that can change the trajectory a little bit. Absolutely. It is actually amazing how powerful that very small step could be. It's actually a really big step 
to do that self-check-in. And there's the whole field you know, of research and psychology about name it to tame it. If you really label and put words to an emotional experience, it immediately diffuses its power. So yeah. giving us, giving ourselves that gift helps us be the parents we want to be more of the time. Yeah. More of the time. I like more that. Time, Not all yeah. of the time. More of the time. <laughs> well, Emily, this has been such a great conversation. And I know there's a lot of people who are going to want to check out Autonomy Supportive Parenting. Where can they find your book and where can they learn more about your work? So the book is available everywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon, Bookshop, Target.com, I think in your local Barnes & Noble. Uh, and then I have a website, emilyedlinphd.com, where I still have a blog. And then I have a Substack newsletter, The Art and Science of Mom, where I get into kind of the daily practice of autonomy supportive parenting and how it really looks in real life. And I am at Dr. Emily Edlin across all the social media platforms. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Raising Middle School Girls podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more conversations with experts designed to help you support your middle school girl, please hit subscribe. You can also sign up for the newsletter at the link in the show notes to receive emails about tips and resources, upcoming events, and new podcast episodes, all designed to support you and your child.